The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. We can read scripture together. Father, thank you that, um, as Jeremy was able to remind us and proclaim to us that the enmity that we had with you because of our sin, that the separation that we had with you from the garden um, is reconciled at the cross. Thank you that when we think of your son, when we think of this season, that what is front and center is that the separation, the loneliness, the pain, the, the questioning of, of is everything gonna turn out okay is resolved in your son because he took on flesh for the very specific purpose of living the life that we are required to live and dying the death that must be had because of our sin, but raising from the grave and offering us a hope and a joy and a love and a peace that we could only have through you. So Father, thank you for that. And in your son's name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You guys can turn to Matthew chapter two. That's where we're going to be. I just wanna say this before we jump into the sermon. I'm, as I was looking at the photos of the service events that have gone on this past month, and as even I'm looking at the various people that are serving and ministering this morning, I just wanna say thank you to uh, participating in the work of the gospel, both here on Sunday morning and in the other outreach events. Uh, what we do here on Sunday morning of celebrating Christ is, is paramount. It's so important. We, we need this moment each week to, um, to stop from the busyness of our lives and to reorient ourselves towards Christ. But it is uh, so important for us to not just hear the words of the gospel, but also for, uh, to allow us to proclaim the words of the gospel through not only our mouths, but also our life and our hands. So thank you for just all of the ways that uh, we and you get to serve Christ in, in this church, in our community. And just thank you for all of the volunteers that uh, are working to make the body of Christ work on a Sunday morning. With that, I would encourage you, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're gonna be uh, at the end of chapter two, starting in verse 13. Here's what it says. Now, when they had departed, this is 2.13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother to go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought, to, who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So that he was a person, by, so, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to blow out these candles because there's so much heat and, and smoke coming off of these. I'm about to, I don't know if this is on. Okay. When one candle, you can work through it. Two candles, one is four. Quite a bit of smoke. Okay. I know something about you. I know something about every single person in this room. Even if I don't know your name, I know something about you. There's something in your life right now that you are questioning, that you're wondering, that you're anxious about how it's going to turn out. There's something that you're questioning, what's going to be the end result of this? Are the actions that I'm putting in place now going to produce the results that I want? I know this about you because we live in this constant wonder, this constant questioning, these constant struggles even, is, is my life going to turn out? Our, our lives are riddled with hours of wondering, maybe even complaining, questioning towards God about what are you doing? Some of these things, as I was sitting down thinking about the hopes that we have, the questions that we have, it's, it's for a variety of situations. Like we wonder if we're going to be glad with the job that we took. We wonder if we're going to be thankful that we moved into the house that we moved into. We wonder, as I'm thinking about students now, it's, it's, it's in the, because it's Christmas time, our graduating students are wondering, both in high school and in college, will the degrees that I want to study, will it pan out okay? Should I actually go into this career field? But I think that we can even stretch this questioning and longing to more personal realities. Is the person that I'm dating right now the person that I should marry? Are my parenting choices right for my kids? What I'm doing now, is it going to make their life set them up for success? Or we could even be questioning, why am I struggling with some particular sin or going through some particular trial? We have these thoughts towards the future at all times. You have something in your life right now that you're wondering, how is this going to work out? Have I made the right decision? What's going on? God, do you have me in the right place? And we are all waiting in anticipation to see how that thing is going to turn out, to see how that thing is going to go. Some of those things are short-term. I mean, it's Christmas time, so some of us are looking at the presents underneath the tree wondering, is that what I think it is? Others, it's long-term, those questions that I just had. I bring that up because Advent, the season that we're in, is all about anticipation. It's all about wonder. It's all about questions. And in these moments of anticipation, there's a level of trust and faith that, that go along with it. That because we're, we're trusting that the signs will pay off. We have faith that what we said was ha will happen will actually happen. We're in anticipation of wondering, is it going to work out all right? That's what we're looking at with the Advent wreath. That's what we're looking at with our Advent series. We're looking at this series of anticipation. But what we get to look at is we get to look at the fact that it did turn out all right. That the faith and the trust that we had by looking at the saints in the Old Testament, they get to the New Testament, they get to the birth of the Messiah, and it worked out all right. But we're still living in a state of anticipation. 
because the advent is never over until the trust and the faith that we have and the thing that we're trusting in when it's fulfilled. I just want to point out something. And this is not just my passage that I'm going to look at, 2.13 through 23, but this has been the entire section that, that we've looked at, Matthew 1 and 2. There's been a consistent word and phrase used over and over again in this section. Actually comes up five times. The word is fulfilled. We get to look at it three times this morning. But the first two times have, have, have already taken place. We can look at uh, chapter 122, and it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. We can see the second time. It doesn't actually say the word fulfilled, but that's what it's meaning here. In 2.5, when it says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judah is where the, uh, the Messiah will be born. For so it is written by the prophet. The prophet's words were being fulfilled. Three times today, I read fulfilled. They remained in Egypt so that it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then at the very end, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Three times we get to look at this word fulfilled. You see, Matthew makes it clear, makes it crystal clear that the baby Jesus that the Messiah, that Mary, Mary's son, fulfills all the markers set by God concerning who the Messiah would be. Everything. If you look at the Old Testament and we look at all the promises, all those moments when God asks us to place our trust and faith in him and say, somebody is coming to make all things new. When the Messiah comes, what Matthew gets to declare to us and what all the other gospel writers declare to us and what the Bible declares to us is that Jesus fulfills, meets those expectations. I mean, just think about how shocking the Messiah is that we've talked about this before, both in the Gospel of John and in this series, how shocking Jesus is. Everyone expected the Messiah to look a certain way. I mean, that, that's really the thing that Jesus was fighting in his ministry because they thought, oh, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to sit on a throne. He's going to take back the, uh, this kingdom. He's going he's to kick the, the Roman emperor in the teeth. He's going to make all things new right now. And then his entire ministry, Jesus was, was pressing back against that. That's why when he starts talking about death and Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, you shouldn't die. That's a really bad plan. And what does Jesus say? He goes, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because the Messiah, when he actually came, when he fulfilled all the promises of the old testament we weren't expecting him to look like he was actually going to look but here's what we get to look at today and here's where i want to go with this i think i'm getting a little ahead of myself we get to see that jesus perfectly fulfills all that god has promised we get to see that we can look at every promise every expectation every longing in the old testament and we can see that jesus perfectly fulfills that promise but we're also going to see this, that the presence of Jesus makes us reconsider the events of the Old Testament. Because here we have three moments of fulfillment. And we're going to look at these three moments. It's going to be a very simple sermon. We're going, to walk three through, we're going to walk through these three moments of fulfillment. And what we're going to see is that the prophets, when they heard these words, did not expect Jesus to be the answer to it, frankly. They weren't looking at these phrases going, oh, 
That's a messianic prophecy. But when Matthew declares it to us, we see, oh, no, that's exactly the messianic prophecy that we need. So we're going to get into it. Very simple structure. It's going to be 13 through 15. First, the first fulfillment, 16 through 18, second, 19 through 23, third. I hope you can follow along. I, I want to read again this first moment of fulfillment. It says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. Just to pick up on the story where we, we left off last week, these wise men, as Jeremy said, it could be three, could be more and more, went to Jerusalem first and sought Herod, and Herod sought all of his wise men, and they sat down and they counseled together, where is this guy going to come from? And they said, well, he says it's going to be from Bethlehem. That was a shock to the wise men, who should have been studying the Bible on their own. And these wise men came, and they found Jesus, and they offered these uh, presents and offerings to Jesus. Well, they understood where they sensed what was behind Herod's questions. And so as they're departing from worshiping the true king, they didn't go back to Herod. Herod wanted them to go back to him. He wanted them to say, we found them. And he's in a manger. And his parents are Mary and Joseph. And he looks like this. And he was born on this day. And this is where you can find him. That's what Herod wanted them to come and report because clearly Herod had a plan and the plan in mind was I'm going to go kill that king because that king is going to take my throne and I can't lose my throne but the wise men decided to not go back to Herod and they departed and it was at that time that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph now by the end of this morning we're going to see Joseph is going to be used to seeing angels in the first section, when he finds that Mary is pregnant and he wants to divorce her quietly, he's thinking, my life is over. That, that didn't go the way that I expected it. An angel came to Joseph at that time and reassured him, says, no, hang on. God's behind this. This is exactly what needs to happen. Well, another angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and is a very simple, but frankly, very frightening command. Rise and take this child and flee to Egypt. This whole thing is a, is a giant imperative, but it, 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 it has this thrust of, of anxiety behind it. I'm sure this is, Joseph, wake up right now. Rise. Go get your family. Go get your young wife and this young child and flee. I mean, this flee, it, it, it's imperative. And flee literally means to seek safety and flight and go to Egypt. And we can see that Joseph understood the anxiety and the, and the urgency behind this appeal because look what he says. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. They fled. Think about Mary and Joseph at this point. They have had numerous moments in their life where the identity of their child has been confirmed. We saw this even before the birth, even before the birth. Mary was with Elizabeth, who is, was with child of John the Baptist. And, and when they came together, the, uh, John the Baptist leapt in her womb and Elizabeth's like, the child that you have in your room is the Messiah. So if Mary was doubting what's going on here, if that could even be possible because of the virgin birth, she has her first uh, a testimony of, oh, this is the Messiah. 
Days after Jesus was born, they would journey to Jerusalem to go through the uh, ceremonial purification and circumcision of their child on the eighth day. And there's Zechariah, who's been sitting at the temple, waiting to see the Messiah with his own eyes, prophesies and confirms the fact this is the Messiah. You then have the wise men coming to them and offering th- their presence and, their, and, and, and these gifts to them. It confirms the fact that this is the Messiah. We see angels, dreams, and visions confirming the fact that this is Jesus, the Messiah. And now... Mary and Joseph are thinking, I've got to get out of town because somebody wants to kill this little baby and it's up to me to protect him. That's the anxiety around this journey. That's where I can, I I think I can just see Joseph immediately wake him saying, we've got to go right now. There is no time for preparation. We need to run. And it's a, It's a journey of 188 miles. It's a long run. This probably took them anywhere between 10 to 15 days of walking. You could, it's it's about an hour and a half flight now if you were to fly from Jerusalem to Cairo. Uh, But if you went by way of foot, it's 188 miles. So think about the anxiety of walking away from your land, walking away from your city, walking away from your family. I mean, you think about the fact of like, but I want to go tell my mom goodbye. I want to go tell my family where we're going. I want to be able to have these departures, but they didn't have any of it. It's pack our bags. We've got to go to Egypt. Just think about Mary and Joseph at this point. They knew that the baby that was born was the Messiah. And now they're leaving town. And you could go, it's not supposed to be this way. I didn't see this coming. I thought it was going to look different. But what Matthew declares to us is that this journey was on purpose. Because where I left off reading, what did Matthew say? That this journey to Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, as I said, all of these moments of fulfillment are found in a prophecy or in a promise from the Old Testament. This one can be found in Hosea 11. Hosea is a fantastic book to read. It's a hard book to read because if you understand the role that we have in the whole analogy, that's the prostitute. But what we can see in Hosea 11 is that after all of the destruction, after all of the shame of Hosea, the prophet, the man of God marrying a prostitute whom he loved and then whom she rejected and then whom he continued to love and reached out after her, when Hosea 11 comes down to, it says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. But then he was in Egypt. And what was he doing in Egypt? They had forgotten about God. If I could retell that whole story, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. Think about when Moses walked back into the land of Egypt to say, I'm sent by God to free you from slavery. And they're going, who? God who? What's his name? They had all but forgotten God at that point. Think about the journey that, that the Israelites had from Egypt to the land of Cana and all of them. I mean, yes, you had the, the 10 plagues, but then think about when they're in the wilderness and, and they had been miraculously saved here and they kept doubting God. They kept wanting to go back to Egypt. They kept wanting to reject God. Just think about that rejection that they had. And yet in Hosea, he goes, out of Egypt, I called my son. To Hosea, he's going, in one sense, it's like, out of sin, I called 
Gomer the prostitute. What's being communicated here by Hosea is that God had not forgotten about his promises. But Hosea is referring to the Exodus. Hosea is referring to the nation of Israel. But Matthew is thinking about Jesus. I'm sure when this book is first passed around and they have been studying the Old Testament for all of their life as it's, it's, it's reaching the, the Jews and the synagogues and the Gentiles and other places and all of a sudden it goes, out of Egypt I call my son? Wait a second. That verse is about Israel. I just want to have a quick aside this morning about typology. The New Testament writers insisted that the Old Testament can only be interpreted rightly. And I got to emphasize that, only be interpreted rightly if the entire revelation is kept in perspective as it's historically unfolded. The New Testament writers knew, listen, if we're going to understand what the Old Testament is about, we actually first have to look at it in light of the New Testament. Here's what D.A. Carson uh, writes about this. I'm just going to quote him here. He says, at best, as far far smarter than I am. In a kind of Israel-Jesus typology, what could be said of the old Israel could on occasion have its application to Jesus. In other words, the divine purpose runs through the whole scripture and at all points in some way, and at all points in some way to the climax is coming to Christ. Hosea is saying, I loved Israel enough that I saved them out of out of Egypt, here God is saying, I'm, I'm loving Jesus enough that out of Egypt I'm even going to call my son. See, Hosea is reminding his readers of God's faithful love because of Egypt or because of the Exodus. But what we now get to see is that there's a new Exodus. There's a greater Exodus. And it's being enacted through a new and greater Moses. You know, that's where we started these new beginnings, this new Moses, this new Exodus, and this new and greater Moses that we're going to see is Jesus Christ. Moving on to the second fulfillment, just for the sake of time, it says this. Then Herod, I'm sure a few days, a few short days later, I don't know where in this journey that this section picks up, but then Herod realizing that the wise men are not going to return to him, as it says, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained to the wise men. Now this Herod that we're talking about is Herod the Great. And he was known for one thing. He was known for one thing with the Romans. He's known for one thing with, uh, with, with, with the Israelites. I mean, he's known for one thing, and this is his one thing. His cruelty. His ruthlessness. He, it was not above him to just kill random people for the sake of his own desires. And we see that here. When he is so angered by the fact that the wise men did not return and tell me who this Messiah was so that I could kill that one kid, he thought, okay. I know how to handle this. I'll just kill them all. Imagine. Imagine that. You're a mom or a dad with a two-year-old or younger. And you see people marching down from Jerusalem. We're talking five miles away here. This is not something that you could prepare for. They didn't have to send messengers to, I mean, this is within hours the, the edict could come out of, Fer, of Herod's mouth 
and it could be done in Bethlehem. Within hours, all of the male children, two years old or younger, are killed. And you could say, that, that, that's so ruthless. Why, why would he even do that? I'll assure you, he did far worse. Herod was a man who killed his own three sons for the purpose of protecting his throne. He was um, afraid that his sons would try to usurp his authority and, and get on his throne sooner than his own death, so he just killed him. He even had, because he wanted to make sure that people were mourning at his death, he, he, he made a law that at the moment that Herod died, one member of every family in all of Israel should die so that the entire nation would be in mourning. By the grace of God, somebody was smart enough to not carry that one out at his death. But when we can hear of these innocent baby boys being killed, we just see the viciousness of this individual. But think about Bethlehem. Think about the mourning, the pain, the questioning. Lord, why? Why did you let that man do this thing to Bethlehem? This is the city of David. You, you had your Messiah born here. And you let that man kill these innocent children for, I would say no reason at all, but for a ridiculous reason because he, he, he was so prideful that he wanted to make sure the king of the Jews died. Lord, why? I mean, it's, easy, it, it, it's easier to handle this thing if it's not your family, if it's not your child, your nephew, your friend, your town. If you're not looking at the weeping mom and dad because Herod decided to kill all of the boys, that, this is a rough story. I mean, it, it, this makes me think, sticking with the Exodus theme, I mean, this is, the, the Herod the Great is just as ruthless as Pharaoh was in Egypt for killing all of the baby boys of the Israelites there. I mean, just think of this pain that's surrounding this. And yet that was to fulfill a prophecy. This is what it say in 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because, because they are no more. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. I've actually been reading through the book of Jeremiah just personally for my own devotions and it's a, it's a book one day, I can't wait to teach through this book. It's a hard book because it, 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 it deals with so much depravity, brokenness. We, you, we have to come face to face with our own and, and, and Israel's own stupidity that in the face of being blessed by God, of being in the face of having, them as, having him as king, they've turned to other sinful ways and other idols and, and have rejected the wisdom of God. And it's a book that Jeremiah, I mean, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he's known as the weeping prophet because he's writing Jeremiah and then he'll write Lamentations because this is the absolute worst decade that Israel has ever seen. I mean, this entire time period of Judah is just being devastated. It's marked, that, it's, it's, it's marked the beginning of the last year of the nation of Judah. That's when the book of Jeremiah starts. And between political, social, financial, moral, and spiritual decay, it led this country in demise, where at one point it goes from this thriving country to 
and a, a few short decades, they're being hauled off to Babylon. They're in ruin. And Jeremiah is writing this book, proclaiming to the nation of Israel, stop following after your sins. Stop thinking that your wisdom, your strength, your armies, your philosophies are going to save you. Stop uh, living in your idolatry and turn to me. And yet they didn't. But what the book of Jeremiah offers, even in the deepest moments of grief and pain and mourning, is that there's hope. That's what chapter 31 of Jeremiah is all about. It's in the middle of the book. There's going to be more mourning and devastation, but it offers hope. I mean, in, in my Bible, the, the, the heading of this chapter is, the Lord will turn your mourning into joy. And that's what's happening here with this prophecy that Matthew is talking about. What happened, historically speaking, is that as Babylon came in and they took over the nation of Israel and Judah, they carted off the uh, the men of um, military age to fight in the military, but then also carted them off to Babylon. And it's believed that they uh, issued a decree that all of the men were to go to Ramah. Now, Ramah was a town five miles north of Jerusalem. So Bethlehem is a town five miles south of Jerusalem. Ramah and Bethlehem actually share the same roadway, but all of these men were, and I'm talking boys, I mean, from, from teenagers to 40 years old, would go to Ramah, and this morning is taking place, as it says, Rachel is weeping for her, her children. This morning is taking place because they know these sons of Israel, these men are being carted off to die, either through battle or in exile. All is lost. This is what it says in Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel, the proverbial mother of Israel, is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. She's at the point of all is lost. But look what 16 says. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I mean, I, I could keep going, but in the, in the midst of pain and, and suffering and longing, Jeremiah and the Lord is saying there's hope for your future. The weeping and the mourning that's happening in Bethlehem when these innocent boys are being murdered can represent the weeping in the morning that happens in this world that we deal with on a daily basis because we live in sin. And while our innocent child might not be murdered, there's something in our life that hasn't gone the way it should. There's something that we look at and go, that is, in a, is, is, is terrible. And yet the same hope that Matthew could offer to the people of Bethlehem and can offer us in this passage still stands true today. That a voice is heard in Ramah and weeping and lamentation and yet there is going to be hope because the Messiah, the expected one, the promised one, Emmanuel has come. And there is hope even in spite of the weeping. 
And that hope has been fulfilled in Christ. Third moment. Third moment takes place in Matthew 16. No, yes, Matthew 16 through 23, 19 through 23. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Roughly three years had passed by this point, and Herod the Great has died. And I can assume directly after that, this angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph. Mary and Joseph have been living in Egypt now at this time period. There would have been a, um, a, a cohort of Israelites living in Egypt. There were people there. So I'm sure that they were around um, other countrymen. Where in Egypt they lived, I don't know. But they set up shop there for several years. I mean, think about it. Three years is a long time. We, we read this one verse after. Three years have taken place. Three years of them longing. When can I return? I mean, this, this, can we have that question? I mean, they're asking the question, Lord, th I, I, this is the Messiah for Israel. Why am I in Egypt? Why am I in a pagan nation? Why can I not be in a, in a place where, where I'm surrounded by my kinsmen who are also worshiping God? No, they're in Egypt, but three years have taken place, and an angel again comes to the Lord in a dream. And I'm sure this one, Joseph's like, thank you. Thank you for finally giving me an answer. And it's a very simple declaration. And in fact, it's, it's, it's very similar to the first one, except the, in, instead of the imperative of flee now, rise, go, that you, your life is in danger, it's rise. Take your child and his mother and go to the land of, of Israel for those who have sought the child's life are dead. The struggle is over in some sense. So they packed up their bags, I'm sure, uh, rather hastily because I'm sure they wanted to see their family. I mean, think about that. Um, the people who didn't know where they went three years ago, they walk back into town. You're like, you're alive? When did you show back up? And they packed their bags and they walked back. But when they had heard that Archelaus, who is Herod's son, Herod the Great was ruthless. His sons were a little better, but when you're a little better from a ruthless state, you're, it's still a scary time. When they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah because he had three sons, and, the, and, and from a reigning standpoint, the nation was split up into three territories. Archelaus was over Judah, which would have been Bethlehem. They go, we should go to a different spot. And so he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, we, don't, we know no other details besides that, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in the city of Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene. Now, this is our third prophecy that Matthew identifies here. But this is the trickiest of them all. Because if you do a Google search through the Old Testament in English and Hebrew, you're never going to find the word Nazareth. In fact, Scholars have, have struggled to figure out who is Matthew identifying here. I mean, we can see it with, with the first time this was to fulfill its, well, that was Hosea 11. That's very clear. We see with the second time, Matthew just straight up says this prophecy was spoken by Jeremiah. But we get to this one, and he doesn't even identify it as one prophet. In fact, he does something that's only seen here in Matthew at this time. He goes, was spoken by the prophets. 
So it's like this clumping of guys. Like, of course, everyone knows that he's supposed to be from Nazareth, but we don't see it anywhere. So what's going on here? The fulfillment has less to do with a particular town name and more to do with status and stature of where our Messiah grew up. Think back in John when we were going through that and we were meeting the disciples as Jesus was calling his, his disciples. And, and we got to see the interaction w- w- between Philip and Nathaniel and the way that Nathaniel was called the Christ. It says this in 1 John 4, 45. Philip told Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses is in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. You didn't want to be from Nazareth. It wasn't exactly the, the ideal town to have your name listed by. And as I was, as I was studying this week, I was thinking about a, 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 a time in my life when I had to be associated with a town that I didn't really want to be associated with. Now, I'm not going to name the town because I don't necessarily want to throw anyone under the bus, but I grew up here in town. And it's like, it's one of these area towns. If you know it, great. If not, totally fine. I'm not going to throw it under the bus. I went on a mission trip when I was 14. It was a teen mission trip. So there was a ton of people from all over the nation. They send trips out all over the world. I went to Honduras for mine. One of the aspects of this team is that you have a name card, and it's got your picture, and it's got your name on it, but also has the town that you're from. I tried every way possible for Nashville to be on that thing. Because it's, it's, it's uh, promoted on their website, it's on videos. I wanted it to say Nashville because I thought, I don't want to be from like Antioch or I don't want to be from like Henderson. I'll just say some of like various things from like Hendersonville or from Hermitage, from Donaldson. I want to be from Nashville because Nashville is cool. I'm 14 at the time, totally overthinking this thing. Could never get it on there. I didn't want to be from the town that I actually grew up in because I wasn't really known for anything. Bethlehem? was known for some stuff. Bethlehem was the city of David. Bethlehem was five miles from Jerusalem. Bethlehem was going to be that place that the king was going to be born. They were, I mean, Bethlehem was on the map. Nazareth wasn't even on the map. Nazareth was known for nothing. This is why Nathaniel goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No. And yet then you think of what the prophet said. Like Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, or no beauty that we should desire him. It continues, but Matthew, or Isaiah 53 is talking about the suffering servant. It's a, it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And where does it start? This man is going to be born in obscurity. And Matthew says this is what's been fulfilled, that he would be called the Nazarene. So that this man is going to be born in obscurity. Matthew has made it explicitly clear that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled all of the promises of the Old Testament. You know, if, if, we, if we compiled all the promises and we didn't know that Jesus was the answer, 
and we sat down and we figured out, okay, now how can he be from the, 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 uh, the line of David and from the city of David and from the root of Jesse, and how can he be coming from out of Egypt and how can he be a suffering servant but also the lamb of God? I mean, think about all the prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. I don't think any of us could ever put together this story perfectly, and yet we can see in a very small section of text that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he fulfills what has to be fulfilled. You know, I started talking this morning about the Advent and about our anticipation. And I want to end there. I know I'm running long because the kids still have to come in and sing. One of the things that sticks out with me of just how crazy how, how crazy of a story that, that God has orchestrated for all of these things to be f- fulfilled in Christ. And how I can trust now, how, how I can see, wow, God, you stayed faithful to your promises because what I thought was impossible of all of these things being fulfilled, they actually are. But when we celebrate the Advent season, we sit here in this moment of anticipation, we are reminded of the sure hope that we have in Christ. That's why we do these candles. That's why we have these sermons. That's why it's always good to stop and to remember that what was anticipated for thousands of years came to fruition in Christ. But here's the thing. We're still living in anticipation. Not for the first advent, but for the second advent. I think even more so, we're living in anticipation. Because the shadows that we saw in the Old Testament of like, who's going to come and how's God going to make this work? And then Christ comes. Now we see an even greater shadow. And we go, Lord, you're coming again. You came the first time and you kept your promises. And even though we could never paint this picture, you're coming again. Now we get to sit here and go, Lord, when are you coming finally? When are you coming the second time to rid us of this pain? I'm surprised, frankly, by what has happened between Christ's first coming and his second coming of whenever that is. And, I'll be, and the longer that Christ waits to come, there'll be even more surprising events. I'm shocked by the trials of this world. I'm shocked by the brokenness that's continually around us and in us. I'm shocked by the pain that I have experienced, let alone the moments of, and stories that are in this congregation and let alone the, those moments of stories that are even outside of this congregation. I mean, I am shocked at what we are living in, what we are trusting in, how long it's been and what's taken place. But here's what I'm not shocked by. And here's where I'm not questioning. Is that God is going to be faithful to his promises. Because I have hope. That even though I would have never painted the story and made the story or it, it, you know, even anticipated what was coming down the pipeline for us, what I can anticipate and what I do know as a sure hope is that Christ will fulfill all of his promises. You know, it's so easy for us to get caught in this cycle of questioning God's timing, questioning the manner in which God does things, the means by which God uses to make his world run. But what I do know is that in the midst of the timing and the manner and the means, what can't escape us is that we have the trust and the hope that God will fulfill what he has promised. 
And I want to leave that with you today. I want to leave that with you with the close of our Advent series. I'm sure there's something in your life, as I said, that you're wondering, God, what are you doing? Why is it happening this way? What's going on? When are you going to take this thing from me? And I don't know the answer to it. You probably don't either. But what I do know is that God's second coming, his advent, is a sure thing. And that we can trust in that. And I do know this, that when he comes, we're going to look back at our life and we're going to go, wow, you were faithful. Even when Israel was in Egypt, you were faithful. Even when Israel was in the wilderness, you were faithful. Even when Israel was, was shaming God and turning their backs on them, you were faithful. Even when you are stuck in whatever you're stuck in, he is faithful. And I hope today and always that you will rest in that. As we turn our attention towards communion, this is a moment when we can remind ourselves of what God has done in Christ when we can remind ourselves of what we needed most, most definitely is found in him. If you're here this morning and you are believing in Christ, that you look to him as your Messiah, that you say, it's not what I have done, it's what, it's what, you, it's, it's what Christ has done, I would uh, encourage you, welcome you to take this table with us. But if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, Maybe a friend brought you here. Maybe this is the first time that you're hearing of this dude named Jesus. Maybe this is the first time that you're realizing you might be trusting in the wrong thing. I would ask that you let this, these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take them to save us. We don't take them to even fill up the, our spirituality. We take them to celebrate. And it's not our hands. It's not our works. It's not our sacrifices. It's not our faithfulness that we're saved by but it's by Christ's faithfulness. It's by Christ's cross. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that while we are wretched sinners, while we are Gomer the prostitute, who you, you loved us, you redeemed us, you, you married us to stick with that analogy, yet we turn our backs on you so often. But Lord, thank you that while we are going with a prostitute, you still offer us hope. That in spite of our faithlessness, you are faithful. Lord, help us this Christmas season. As I know, there's something in each of our hearts longing and aching and wondering how's it gonna turn out. Lord, help us to rest in you knowing that regardless of the trials of this world regardless of the struggles that we have you will remain faithful to your promises because you did in Christ and you will never leave us nor forsake us in your son's name amen Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.